Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with my guest, Nick McClellan. Nick is a correspondent for Islands Business Magazine, a regional news and current affairs magazine published in Fiji. He is a journalist and researcher in the Pacific Islands. We are here today to discuss his new book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb, Tests published in Canberra by Australian National University Press in 2017. Nick, I'm absolutely grateful to be in communication with you today. Ari, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. To begin, uh, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up and were there any formative events in your life that stimulated the journalist you would later become? I grew up in um, Victoria, Australia, family came from a farm, um, but I grew up in Melbourne, the uh, biggest city in the south of Australia. Really um, came from quite a conservative family, but uh, went to university in uh, 1975, and it was a time of enormous change in the world. Um, the end of the Vietnam War, in which Australia had been involved, uh, um, the winds of change um, in the Pacific Islands around uh, the end of colonialism in 1975, Australia ended its role as colonial power in what's today Papua New Guinea, um, one of the largest Melanesian nations that surrounds uh, Australia. And Australia is surrounded by small island developing states. Um, at that time, too, our government, uh, uh, under the Conservative government, um, began uh, to mine uranium, um, both for power generation for sale overseas but obviously contributing to the nuclear fuel cycle. So as a university student, I was involved in, uh, um, in all of these issues around colonialism, around the environment, and around the, uh, the role of uh, uh, uranium mining in the broader nuclear cycle. And that led me to an understanding of uh, nuclear testing in the Pacific Islands region. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope readers will gain from it? Well, I... I eventually became a journalist. I spent 20 years of my life working as a community development worker, working with uh, volunteer programs, with human rights organizations, with indigenous organizations in the Pacific Islands. Um, and, uh, you know, I learned a lot about how people in the islands perceived um, the great powers that uh, had been and were still colonial uh, authorities in the region. Um, I lived and worked in Fiji in the late 90s um, and worked alongside uh, colleagues where we um, began to record the stories of uh, Fijian servicemen who in the 1950s had participated in Britain's nuclear testing program in the Pacific Islands. And that led to the publication of a book called Krisimasi. Um, so when I returned to Australia after living in Fiji, um, I uh, started work as a journalist, um, uh, first doing some radio journalism, 
and later um, writing. I've always enjoyed writing uh, um, and co-authored a few books, um, but I'm not a scholar, not a university academic, uh, um, and I've been a working journalist for more than 20 years, um, writing about all aspects of life in the Pacific Islands. Um, but I've had a particular interest and fascination in the nuclear legacies of this region, simply because um, right through uh, the Cold War, after the Second World War, uh, for 50 years, the United States, Great Britain and France used the deserts and oceans and islands of our region as a testing ground for the development of their nuclear arsenals. Um, that 50 years of nuclear testing, more than 315 nuclear tests, nu numerous other nuclear experiments were conducted in an area that was perceived as empty, but of course wasn't. Um, and uh, as a journalist, I was fascinated by the health and environmental legacies that people were facing and so wanted to tell their stories. And that's really what drove me to put all this together um, as the book Grappling with the Bomb. How has your book been received by readers in Oceania? Can you comment on the response of Fijian and Ikarabas readers? There's been a lot of interest simply because the British nuclear testing program is not very well known. Um, the United States began its tests in the Pacific uh, soon after the end of the Second World War um, in 1946 in uh, what's today the Republic of the Marshall Islands, but in those days was a United Nations strategic trusteeship administered by the US Navy. Um, and many people uh, um, may have heard the name Bikini Atoll. Uh, the United States um, tested weapons on Bikini and Eniwetok Atolls to um, Micronesian Atolls in the Northern Pacific. Uh, and uh, the history, however, of the British nuclear testing program is less well known internationally um, because of uh, restrictions under what was known as the McMahon Act passed in 1946. The United States was reluctant to share its nuclear technology, even with allies like Britain, wartime ally uh, uh, during the Second World War. Russia obviously had uh, networks of spies, had developed its own scientific capacity, and soon after, the Americans developed the atomic weapons, so did the Russians. Similarly, after the United States exploded its first thermonuclear weapon, a hydrogen bomb in 1952, the Russians followed suit. And Britain, too, wanted to maintain its place on the high table of international affairs, despite the fact that after the Second World War, the British Empire was crumbling. Um, uh, Britain uh, was bankrupt and uh, successive governments um, wanted to spend, however, vast sums of money to develop an independent nuclear capacity, a nuclear weapons capacity, um, to uh, keep on the high table um, of the UN Security Council and global affairs. And so um, in the Pacific, the reaction has been for the book very positive, simply because no one really told much of the story about what happened in today, the Republic of Kiribati, in those days, the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony. Britain uh, did a number of tests in Australia, um, 12 atomic bomb tests, but wanting to develop the more powerful hydrogen bomb, a thermonuclear weapon with much greater force than those dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they had to find a new test site. And they chose their colony um, in the, uh, uh, the Central Pacific, um, in the Line Islands, uh, 
uh, these two atolls, Christmas Island and Malden Island, uh, for a series of nine tests codenamed Operation Grapple. So my book, Grappling with the Bomb, pardon the pun, is about that hidden history, um, largely unknown even in the Pacific. Most of the standard texts about uh, Kiribati don't mention the nuclear tests. Most standard histories of the bomb talk about Bikini Atoll and then French testing at Mururoa Atoll and Fungatofa, where France set off 193 nuclear tests. But the Christmas Island tests are largely invisible in the international literature. And so um, that drove me really to, to, to tell the story of the people who participated. What contribution does your book make to contemporary environmental history in general and the environmental history of Oceania in particular? There's, there's quite a, a burgeoning literature about British nuclear tests written from the Northern Hemisphere perspective. Um, you know, there's official histories written by a wonderful historian named Lorna Arnold, um, sadly passed away, who's written a lot about the British nuclear program. But her focus was very much on the scientists, the politicians, um, who um, developed uh, uh, Britain's nuclear weapon weapons arsenal. And her focus was very much on the great scientific triumph um, that was involved. She was less interested, I think, well, I, I say she was interested, but she didn't bother writing about um, the people who were involved in doing the work that made this possible, the soldiers, the sailors, the civilian workers and others who participated in this Operation Grapple. Grapple was um, a symbol that they chose, a grappling hook representing the four prongs um, that made the nuclear testing program in the Central Pacific possible, um, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, which was the, the boffins who actually built the bomb. Um, so this was very much part of uh, um, a much bigger Cold War process. Um, and it came um, at a time of enormous change too um, in uh, Cold War history. The United States let off a massive bomb in 1954, 1st of March, 1954 on Bikini Atoll called um, uh, Bravo. It's the code name. It was the largest nuclear detonation in the atmosphere by the United States um, during this period. Uh, it irradiated um, US service personnel and uh, local Marshall Islanders, Micronesian people living on atolls nearby, and indeed spread across pretty much all of the Marshall Islands um, with the winds carrying radioactive fallout across this vast area and indeed around the globe over time. Bravo came to international attention because of the um, uh, Japanese fishing boat, the Lucky Dragon, number five. Um, a number of Japanese fishermen who were very close to the test site and returning to um, um, Tokyo suffered from uh, radiation sickness. One of the sailors died. And um, because of hostility to the nuclear legacies of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the American attack on Japanese cities at the end of the Second World War. So the Lucky Dragon caused enormous stir within Japan and sparked a whole cultural movement against the bomb um, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, so you saw the Godzilla movies, which were inspired um, by the Bravo test. Um, a British novelist named Neville Shute, living in Australia, wrote a book called On the Beach, which became a famous uh, 
uh, movie, um, Gregory Peck and uh, Ava Gardner and others. Um, the Maori poet from Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, Honi Tufere, wrote a, a poem called No Ordinary Sun. The blast was No Ordinary Sun. So this became a cultural moment. And um, I think that that's really important to recognize that the people reacted in different ways to this moment. Some were participants in the development of the nuclear arsenals and many Pacific Islanders participated, whether as service personnel or as laborers in the process. Others dominated the process and supported it, politicians from many Commonwealth countries, but others resisted. And that's the story I tried to tell that there were different reactions different, from different participants. And my book is structured around the stories of those individuals, um, whether they were active participants in Operation Grapple, the development of the British hydrogen bomb, whether they actively resisted it, as many did, both people from outside, but also many Pacific Islanders, even though they were living under colonial domination at the time. Of the testimonies that you collect, are there any particular ones that you were personally most moved by? There's quite a few. Um, the book is structured around um, each chapter, starts with the story of an individual, um, and, um, you know, including Prime Minister um, Harold Macmillan, who was really central to this period in 1957, 1958, when Britain conducted the nuclear tests in Kiribati. Um, so Winston Churchill, John Kennedy gets a, 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 a brief run, JFK. But also I tell the tales of, uh, of participants, um, civilian, military, uh, in the tests. I think one that, that personally really inspired me was a, a British pacifist who tried to get to the Central Pacific to uh, show his opposition. Um, Harold Steele uh, had had a long um, history of pacifism. He was a conscientious objector during the uh, First World War and was arrested, tried, court-martialed, jailed for a number of years for refusing to fight as a conscientious objector in the slaughter fields of France. Um, he continued his involvement as a pacifist after the war and by the 1950s, quite elderly, decided when he heard about the plans to uh, detonate hydrogen bombs in uh, the Central Pacific, um, decided that he would bear moral witness and sail a boat into the testing zone and try and stop it. Now, later years, Greenpeace perfected this technique and uh, um, Greenpeace uh, and many other um, sailors courageously sailed into uh, test zones um, to try and halt nuclear testing by the Western nuclear powers. But in 1956, 1957, this was a pretty novel idea. Um, and um, this was even before the creation of CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, which became a, a major mass movement in the United Kingdom opposed to British nuclear weapons policy and to the proliferation of nuclear weapons uh, throughout uh, that period. Um, but Harold Steele was, uh, I think, a cranky old... Uh, it and decided that he'd try and sail a boat. Um, he got uh, support from a number of people um, and set up an emergency committee um, for the end of nuclear weapons testing. Um, got support from Bertrand Russell, the famous British philosopher, Spike Milligan, the comedian, um, uh, John Houseman, a famous playwright at the time. They raised funds and he started traveling 
Um, he got as far as uh, Tokyo by the time the first bomb was exploded um, on Molden Island in May 1957. So he never actually made it to Kiribati. And one of the reasons was, and this is why I really enjoyed writing this chapter, the British intelligence services tried to stop him. They were very aware that um, public protest by a British citizen um, against British nuclear testing would um, stir concern at a time that there was growing international calls for a moratorium on nuclear testing. After the Soviet H-bomb tests in 53, the Bravo test in 54, there was growing movements around the world to call for an end to nuclear testing in the atmosphere. Scientists knew that radioactive fallout spread through the winds, um, particularly strontium-90 and uh, other um, uh, isotopes of ionising radiation. Um, so there's international pressure. Similarly, there was a growing non-aligned movement in 1955 in Indonesia. There was uh, uh, the Bandung Conference, which brought together countries from Africa, from Asia, newly emerging decolonised nations. And they called for an end to nuclear testing by the, um, the major powers. So this was a time where, you know, this act of moral witness by Harold Steele was um, really resonating. And through the archives, I've tracked the way in which um, intelligence services, uh, diplomats tracked his movements, and he tried to disrupt his movements. So there was some fairly unsubtle questions about whether he should be blocked from entering Fiji, uh, whether he should be, um, you know, if he missed the boat, uh, could he miss the boat, hinted some uh, um, telegrams um, from uh, diplomats in the Pacific to those in London and um, you know, that, that the role of intelligence services in the decolonisation process throughout the British Empire is underdocumented, um, and the British, not surprisingly, keep a lot of the files that are necessary to tell that history still secret to this day. But um, Harold Steele is one of the figures that uh, really captured me. There was another um, woman that um, also was an amazing story, a woman I met, um, Sui Benan Kiritomi a woman of uh, uh, Ikiribas heritage, so in those days called Gilbertese. Um, she came from the Gilbert Islands, which were part of the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony, this British colony across Micronesia in the Central Pacific. Um, she came to Christmas Island, where there was a small plantation before the British arrived to set up this massive military base um, where they could test their weapons. Um, there were plantation workers still on the island, and her husband was the school teacher for the kids of the plantation workers. Um, Britain sent a, a massive naval task force um, and uh, engineers um, to Christmas Island to build a military base and a massive airstrip. There had been a World War II airstrip, but they transformed it through concreting this miles long airstrip that could take large um, Vulcan and Valiant bombers uh, to use to drop the bomb. Um, into the air and uh, uh, test its capacity. Um, and so there were um, uh, plantation workers who were transformed into laborers. Um, and uh, I told in the book the story of Mrs. Kiritomi, partly because, um, you know, it, it captured something that's largely been hidden from history, the impact on indigenous communities in the Pacific um, from the testing. There's quite a few books about the British service personnel who came to Christmas Island. There's about 14,000 over the six years of the, the operation. So a large number of Brits have told their stories nowadays. But the Fijians, the New Zealanders, the Gilbertese, the Kiribati who were involved, 
uh, their stories have really never been told. And so Mrs. Kuratomi's is especially poignant. In the early tests um, conducted, they sent the whole Naval Task Force down to Malden Island, which is about 650 miles to the south of Christmas Island, where they established this massive airstrip, this massive uh, military base full of tents and encampments and so on for the thousands, three or 4,000 a year, British troops who were there, as well as scientists. But Mrs. Kiratomi um, had the bad luck to be invited aboard one of the warships when they moved the test back to Christmas Island. The early three tests on Malden hadn't achieved the megaton range, this million ton equivalent of TNT that they were searching for to really show that they'd made a thermonuclear weapon and a hydrogen bomb rather than an atom bomb. So because there was a rush, because they wanted to get the testing done before a global moratorium on atmospheric testing could happen, they moved the whole testing back to Christmas Island where people were living. And uh, um, some of the smaller tests were conducted actually at the end of the island, tethered on balloons. Others were dropped from a plane. And in April 1958, Mrs. Kiritomi and her husband, because he was the teacher and had acted as interpreter with the local islanders, was invited up on deck on a British warship to watch the bomb being dropped. Um, the Grapple Y bomb, which was the largest of the, the tests conducted during these nine uh, test series. Of course, as often happened in nuclear testing programs all around the world, the winds changed. Uh, there was a rain cloud and uh, radioactive isotopes through fallout were carried across the Naval Task Force across the camp where thousands of men, mainly men, were living. Mrs. Kiritomi standing on the deck of the warship in a cotton shift, looking up at the sky, the black cloud, felt the rain on her cheek, radiation burn, still shown when I interviewed her, years, when I met her years later. She was pregnant at the time and her daughter, Akes, who I met, later, you know, was obviously concerned about the intergenerational effects of what this might mean. And the tragedy of the, and this is really what the book tries to capture is, in the decades since all these events happened, since Harold Steele tried to stop the bombing and failed, since thousands of young men, British, Fijian, New Zealand, went to make the tests work, since the islanders, small number, living on the island, um, were there, the British government has refused its moral responsibility to address the health and environmental legacies that are left behind, and particularly the health legacies, because many of the people who participated feel that they were exposed to um, hazardous levels of ionising radiation, something that the UK government denies to this day in what's a, a moral scandal. Um, other nuclear powers, the United States, France and others, have set up some compensation schemes for the civilian and military personnel who participated in the test sites. Britain has refused to do so to this day, um, despite promising at the time that they would care for those civilian and military staff who's, who staff the test sites. Um, and so Mrs. Kiritomi's story as the ultimate person who wasn't involved in the development of nuclear weapons, but was there, but was a witness and had a story and an intergenerational story to tell. Um, that's why I wrote the book. For our, reader, for our listeners and for any readers who might not have 
the background and familiarity, could you kindly place the history and geography of the events in your book in appropriate context for, for those who might not have the requisites background? So the, the islands of the Pacific are spread across a vast area. Um, they cover you know, parts of the northern Pacific, um, the islands of Micronesia, as they're known, um, the small islands. Uh, so you have countries like the Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, the Republic of Palau today. After the Second World War, though, they were a part of a UN strategic trusteeship administered by the US military. Um, Britain and France, two major colonial powers. Um, Britain was a colonial power in Fiji up until 1970. And so during the period uh, that we're talking about in the mid-1950s, um, Fijians uh, served in the British armed forces and police. Um, similarly, uh, the British Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony were spread across a vast area of the Central Pacific. Um, today, the Republic of Kiribati is in all four hemispheres, north, south, east and west. It's right at the centre of the world. Um, not for you in the northern hemisphere, but... Uh, um, the Kiribati are proud that uh, the international dateline runs through their nation. Um, they're, uh, uh, you know, at the centre of the Pacific. Uh, there's very small, low-lying atoll countries today, uh, very concerned by uh, um, climate change and sea level rise. Um, Kiribati has about 820-odd square kilometres of land, but 3.5 million square kilometres of ocean, exclusive economic zones. And so the Western powers saw these areas um, as empty, vast empty spaces away from population centres where they could test nuclear weapons. And that's been the case for all the nuclear powers. The Americans began their testing in the Nevada desert, thinking that Nevada was, was empty. Tell that to the downwinders and the people in Las Vegas. Um, similarly, the testing program in the Marshall Islands. Um, the other element of this, of course, was that these were colonial times uh, in the second half of the 20th century, and indeed continuing today. Um, France conducted 193 nuclear tests in the Pacific. It began in the deserts of Algeria when Algeria was a French colony in 1960. Um, but as the Algerians moved to independence, France finished its testing program after independence while they were building a base in the Pacific. Um, and that central link between colonialism and nuclearism is very much part of the book. The United States, France and Britain could only test nuclear weapons at 10 locations across the Pacific because they were colonial powers in the Pacific. And the United States and France are still recognised as colonial powers by the UN Special Committee on Decolonisation to this day. Um, this was a time of um, Cold War transformation too. Um, the Western allies um, were greatly concerned about um, the Soviet Union as it was in those days, about the development of a nuclear arsenal by um, the Soviet Union. And so um, Britain, wanting to maintain its status as one of the victors of the Second World War, but a time of major economic collapse, um, saw nuclear weapons as a way of maintaining its status. You know, the testing program that began in Australia between 1952 and 57 in the deserts of Australia, um, developed an atomic bomb. But the hydrogen bomb was seen as more powerful. Um, thermonuclear weapons were seen as necessary 
um, to be on the high table of international affairs. So Britain, like other powers to follow, um, wanted to develop uh, thermonuclear weapons rather than just atomic weapons. And uh, this was a, a really crucial time. 1956, the Suez Crisis, where um, Israel, uh, Britain and France invaded Egypt against the national regime. It was an ignominious failure for the British. Um, the Americans pressured them to withdraw from uh, the invasion. And um, so the, the push to maintain Operation Grapple, um, this uh, series of H-bomb tests in the Central Pacific, came at a time of empire, came at a time of colonialism, and came at a time of technolo technological fetishism where you know, the bomb was seen as a symbol of a, a technologically advanced society. Um, and uh, there's a whole literature on uh, um, the fetish around nuclear weapons as part of a, a notion of being an advanced society. And you can see that in the attitude um, that comes from all these nuclear weapon states that um, there was a recognition that um, nuclear radiation could be hazardous to human health. People had seen what had happened in Japan with Nagasaki and um, uh, Hiroshima. People had seen what happened in the aftermath of Bravo. And while the public facade was, oh, this is all safe, the scientists, the military, the politicians who went ahead with these testing programs knew that they were hazards, but they felt that the numbers of people living in these isolated areas of the world, or so they were seen from the Northern Hemisphere, was they were insignificant. And indeed, I found in the archives um, documents written in 1956, which looked at um, risk rates for um, um, people. And they set different risk rates for uh, civilized populations, those that wore clothes, boots, and washed, quote unquote, to so-called primitive peoples who did not have these attributes. And they set different standards for the primitive peoples, i.e. the Pacific Islanders who were living nearby, to the um, uh, British forces who were there. The British soldiers today, to this day, believe they were used as guinea pigs. Um, and there were scientific studies conducted all through this period about the exposure um, of ionizing radiation and what it meant for human health. Uh, in the Marshall Islands, after the Bravo test, there was a case, a control group that could be used for nuclear experiments. And the Americans set up Project 4.1 to study what had happened. Uh, there was another Orwellian named project called Project Sunshine, which looked at the spread of strontium-90, which got into people's bones, caused cancers. And strontium-90 spread around the world. Um, and so in my country, Australia, um, Australian and British scientists collected more than 20,000 samples of um, tissue and bone, particularly from dead children, um, which were um, incinerated and then the ashes sent uh, to Britain for um, uh, monitoring how much strontium-90 could be found in the bones um, of children. All of this done, of course, without prior informed consent. Um, so there's a sordid, sordid history of radiation experiments on people. And many of the participants in uh, the British testing program and the US and the French and the Russians feel that they were used as guinea pigs at this time. In your book, uh, you quote the words of Josiah Vorecki Bainimarama, also known as Frank Bainimarama, 
who would later become the prime minister of Fiji, having led the coup of 2006. You quote his words as follows. Fiji is not prepared to wait for Britain to do the right thing. We owe it to these men to help them now, not wait for the British politicians and bureaucrats. So today I have the great honor to award these survivors with a modest token of what we can afford to finally acknowledge the great injustice that was done to them six decades ago. You may ask, why is Fiji taking responsibility for something that is the fault of Britain? My answer is this, too much time has passed. The ranks of these survivors are rapidly thinning. Too many men, our fellow Fijians, have gone to their graves without justice. Those who remain deserve justice and Fiji as a nation is determined for them to finally get it. Can you contextualize these words for us? And what did they mean in the context of the, the times in which he ruled Fiji and contemporary ethical and political issues in the region? So Varengi Banimarama, that is Frank Banimarama, is the prime minister of Fiji to this day. He's a former military officer a rear admiral, retired in the Fiji Navy. And um, as you say, led a military coup in 2006. Time's short, so I won't go into the whole history of that. But he was elected as prime minister in 2014. And the words you've quoted were um, spoken at a ceremony uh, just months later in early 2015, where the Bainimarama government gave a grant, a small grant of uh, money to the surviving Fijian participants of Operation Grapple, the British nuclear testing program in, in the Pacific, um, and to the families of those who'd already died. Um, you know, the tests were conducted in 1957, 1958. And for Bainimarama, it was personal. You know, there'd been attempts right throughout the 1980s, 1990s to get compensation and recognition from the British government. Um, indeed, a court case was launched um, by British nuclear veterans and a contingent of New Zealanders and Fijians joined that court case seeking compensation for the adverse health effects caused by exposure to ionising radiation. And um, over a 1,000 people were in the, in the class action, as it was, uh, um, and a sample group of um, 10 were chosen, including uh, Fijian Peter Rokaratu. That case went its way slowly through the court system in the United Kingdom, um, with the UK Ministry of Defence resisting it all the way, refusing recognition for what had happened, denying completely that anyone had faced hazardous levels of radiation exposure. There was acknowledgement of a few pilots who'd flown through the mushroom cloud to gather samples and had died of leukaemia and other illnesses. Apart from those guys, Britain said no one was really at risk um, these were safe tests, so-called. Um, so they resisted um, any compensation, unlike the United States, which has legislation for downwinders, people downwind of nuclear testing, um, set up a nuclear claims tribunal in the Marshall Islands. Britain has refused and fought it. So when Barney Marama came to power, he um, got his government to give them a, a medical grant. And he said, this is not compensation. Britain still has a responsibility to provide compensation 
to the Fijian participants. We were in the British Army at that time, British Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve, um, and, and should be treated as such. The survivors, by the time this happened in 2015, were very elderly. They were young men who, often born in the late 1930s, had gone as 18, 19, 20-year-olds to um, Christmas Island. Um, and the first contingent, because these were young kids, really, often they're leaving Fiji for the first time, the first contingent of 39 Fijian sailors who went to Christmas Island aboard two New Zealand uh, frigates was led by a man called Ratu Inoki by Nimarama. And you've guessed it, it was the father of Fiji's current prime minister. So this is very personal for Bainimarama, that his father, um, slightly older at that time, had led the contingent of Fijians, uh, first of all, followed by several other contingents, including not only sailors, but army personnel who worked as labourers, as engineers, um, with the British Armed Forces at that time uh, for the nuclear testing program. So the granting of a, a medical grant to the survivors and to the families of those who died was symbolic that Fiji felt there was a moral responsibility. And I've interviewed many of the people, including Ratu Enoki Banimarama, my colleague Losena Salambula and I talked to Banimarama back in the 90s before he died. Um, these were men who supported King, God, Empire. For many years, they stayed silent, having signed the Official Secrets Act, come back, and were often seen not really as real combatants. Fiji has a long tradition of participating in... Uh, um, Britain's imperial military escapades going back to the Second World War through Malaya, counterinsurgency in Aden and so on. There's a proud tradition today of uh, international peacekeeping. So many Fijians have served in the armed forces. But those who went off to Christmas Island were seen as a peacetime operation. They weren't eligible for the aftercare fund, which is a return services pension. Um, so the Fiji government decision to grant them some small amount of money for their medical costs um, was really symbolic that Fiji recognised the moral obligation to these men, even if there was no legal obligation. Um, but Fiji pressed Britain and continues to do so. And I think it's striking that that plays out in international politics. Um, just uh, this year, Rangi Banimarama travelled to Vienna in Austria for the first meeting of state parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This is the Nuclear Ban Treaty, a nuclear abolition treaty that's been created um, after work by the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement and the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, um, ICANN, which is a global citizens movement uh, that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. And Bani Rama was the only foreign leader who spoke at that Vienna conference as a president or prime minister, and he called for the abolition of nuclear weapons. And Fiji is one of 10 countries, um, including Aotearoa, New Zealand, and nine small island states that have already ratified this global nuclear ban treaty, which seeks not just arms control measures, but in fact, the abolition of nuclear weapons and an end to the development of nuclear arsenals. And what's unique about this treaty is that it has provisions that call for environmental remediation and that call for assistance to nuclear survivors. And so what happened in the 1950s is history, but it's still lived history. And people in the Pacific are living with the nuclear legacies, health, environmental, 
economic, cultural. And opposition to nuclear weapons is strong in the region because the 50 years of nuclear testing across 10 locations in the region has left scars, physical scars, emotional scars, cultural scars, certainly environmental scars, and the problem hasn't gone away and won't gone away because radiation lasts a long time. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Can you describe the similarities and differences of the history of nuclear testing in French Polynesia and in the Marshall Islands to that which took place on Christmas Island? The scale and size of the tests was different. The timing was different. Um, There are many commonalities, as I've already described, um, Mm. about the, uh, the willingness to expose civilian and military personnel to fallout, the environmental catastrophe that's been created in these areas. But there are different cultural traditions, um, institutional traditions that have made it different. Um, So, for example, um, for all the faults of the US system, and there are many, um, there is a tradition about congressional investigations and about um, um, information sharing, um, constitutionally entrenched rights uh, under the US Constitution and a tradition of litigation um, in the US courts that's different to the British tradition. Um, So there are some institutional differences. There's a wonderful book written by uh, an American nuclear researcher named Alex Wellerstein called Restricted Data. It's an incredible book worth worth reading. And um, he talks about the tension between nuclear secrecy and nuclear openness. Um, um, The obvious need to keep certain secrets about nuclear weapons hidden (laughs) so people can't make the bomb, although it's not going very well, as we know, with the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world today. Um, At the same time, an openness um, about um, the very fact of what happened in history. And that occurred for the Marshall Islands in the 1990s under the Clinton administration. Uh, The then uh, Secretary of Energy, uh, Hazel O'Leary, declassified lots of documents um, about the nuclear history of what had gone on in the 1940s and 50s. And that included, obviously, the testing program in the Marshall Islands between 1946 and 1958. And the Marshall Islands government, having negotiated an agreement um, uh, with the United States um, about nuclear compensation, setting up a nuclear claims tribunal, suddenly found a whole lot of evidence um, that uh, showed that the Americans knew back in the 1950s that not just three or four atolls um, had been contaminated badly by the Bravo test in the north of the country, but 20 out of 22 atolls in the Marshalls had received significant levels of fallout from um, um, the 67 atomic and hydrogen bomb tests conducted in the north of the country at Bikini and Inuitok. So that level of transparency that existed um, was significant. And the Marshalls has been campaigning for the last 20 years more, seeking extra compensation from the US government 
um, for more than $2.6 billion US dollars worth of compensation for health losses and uh, property damage caused by the American tests to Marshall Islanders. Britain has a cult of secrecy and writing the book, I relied a lot on archival materials, um, particularly from the colonial office, which was a bit easier to get colonial office archives than uh, Defence Department war office archives. Um, and the Ministry of Defence in Britain is notoriously secretive. Indeed, there's a, been a, a growing anger in recent years since 2018 from um, historians and scholars of the nuclear era and of British nuclear policy that the Ministry of Defence has actually withdrawn some um, files from access about this period where Britain was developing its nuclear weapons program. Um, and, uh, you know, historians, regardless of their politics, see this sort of secrecy as, uh, you know, as really dangerous, um, simply because um, the public facade was presented that these nuclear tests were safe, that there was no significant hazard to participants, and that there was no environmental risk. Now, those were lies. And there is documentary evidence enough that's leaked out to show that they were lies. Um, but that facade is still maintained to this day. The French conducted a lot more tests and later in the region. Um, after testing in Algeria, um, they set up the uh, Pacific uh, Testing Centre in the islands of French Polynesia, which are located in the Eastern Pacific, um, spread over five archipelagos, a vast area, uh, more than 5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone make up uh, French Polynesia. People will know the main island of Tahiti, Bora Bora, are tourist islands, but Mururoa and Fangatofa are nuclear sacrifice zones to this day. France conducted 193 atmospheric and underground tests at Mururoa and Fangatofa over a 30-year period between 1966 and 1996. Um, once again, there were many thousands of military personnel who served there but also many Maui workers, these are Polynesian workers, Tahitians and others, um, who staffed the test site as labourers, as um, scuba divers. I interviewed one guy whose job was to dive into the lagoon at Motoroa um, after they'd um, drilled a hole into the basalt base of the atoll, put a bomb down the bottom, plugged it up with concrete, and after the underground explosion, um, the radioactive isotopes were supposed to fuse into the basalt base of the island but of course there was leakage and his job was to dive into the water and collect samples to see how much tritium might have leaked into the lagoon. Um, we know today, of course, that um, Motor Atoll has at least five kilograms of plutonium spread in particles throughout the, um, the atoll. It's a disaster, always will be for the rest of human history. Um, and France belatedly set up a compensation scheme in 2010. Um, it was rigged for the first five years, only 2% of applications for um, uh, compensation were granted. There has, in 2010, France set up a compensation commission um, to provide compensation for people involved in the French program uh, in Algeria and in French Polynesia. Um, it was badly organized in the first five years of operation, only 2% of applications seeking compensation for health impacts were granted. There's been recent reforms, but um, there's a long way to go before France also accepts its responsibilities in um, uh, looking after the people who were involved in the testing program. Britain, to this day, refuses to, um, to recognise that it has 
a legal and moral obligation to look after the people who serve the British Empire. Can you explain the concept of contested illnesses? One of the problems that faces many of the people who attribute their health problems to the nuclear period is proof. Um, you know, various cancers can be caused by all sorts of sources, smoking, chemical, and so on. Um, and to attribute a particular illness to exposure to radiation is often quite complex at a scientific level. There are clear cases. The pilots uh, who flew through the mushroom cloud gathering samples um, often died very quickly, very painfully from um, illnesses like leukemia that can be directly attributed to their role in the nuclear testing program. But in many cases, um, ionizing radiation takes time to affect the human body. Decades later, people may start getting illnesses. Um, and um, to prove that a particular type of cancer, a particular type of skin disease, a particular type of illness can be attributed to nuclear testing and the exposure to radiation at that time is very difficult. And that's one of the reasons why Britain has uh, resisted this uh, compensation calls. The British have conducted epidemiological studies um, through the National Radiation Protection Board, which is government instrumentality. Um, and there's been a series of studies um, which on the epidemiology suggests that there's no problems of excess cancer deaths that might be attributed to the testing program. Now, those studies are fiercely contested by groups like the British Nuclear Test Veterans Association, the New Zealand Test Veterans Association, and others. Um, one of the problems for the uh, Fijian and uh, Gilbertese, Ikitabas participants in the, the testing program of Operation Grapple is the numbers are so small and it's very hard to do properly managed control studies um, that can prove the source of illness. There's plenty of evidence that people have been sick. Um, and in my book, I document um, some of the tragic stories um, of health effects for the veterans themselves and indeed for the next generation. Paul Arpoy, for example, was one sailor who witnessed a, a number of nuclear tests on uh, Christmas Island and Malden Island. He was involved in cleanup operations, dumping drums of nuclear contaminated material, just 44 gallon drums full of you know, uniforms and waste and things, taking it out in a boat and dropping it into the ocean. Um, he had serious health problems throughout his life, including a number of skin diseases um, and illnesses. His daughter died at two and a half. Um, his son who lived uh, is unable to have children. So Paul told me these stories with great emotion and great responsibility. He was less worried about his own health as to worry um, that there might be intergenerational effects. Now, there's a huge scientific dispute about whether, you know, second generation exposure is an issue. Um, and one of the... Uh, the important things that the book documents is the story of a guy called Professor Al Rowland. Al's a New Zealand scientist, a geneticist who did a, a very detailed scientific controlled study, peer group study of um, the New Zealand sailors who traveled aboard two New Zealand frigates as weather ships to be involved in this operation. And our study showed significant um, uh, genetic translocations. I won't go into the detail, but uh, using you know, quite detailed scientific studies, um, he's shown that there were impacts 
on the genetics of the New Zealand sailors. Um, it's peer-reviewed science. It's been published. Um, it's, while there's been grumbling from the British uh, military establishment, um, no one's uh, um, written a critique of it uh, that's been, uh, once again, peer-reviewed and published. Um, and it sits there as a mute testimony that there were impacts on the sailors, that the epidemiological studies conducted by the British military and medical establishment don't really take account of the lived experience of what happened. And that's, that's partly why I wrote the book, to actually document what did happen. One tiny example, the British proudly say, oh, well, we banned people from eating fish in the days after the nuclear test in case there was fallout that might enter into the food chain. Um, but I interviewed Fijians who said, oh, we didn't like the British food, so of course we went fishing. There were crabs, there were beautiful fish, this beautiful Pacific island. We went fishing all the time. We had beach parties. The Scottish troops went and bought the beer and the Fijians caught the fish and they had, these were 19, 20-year-old kids sitting on a paradise Pacific island in the middle of nowhere and they had beach parties and sang and drank and um, had fish fries on the beach. Um, there's photos of that. Um, so the British say, well, we had regulations that people weren't allowed to eat the fish, but the lived experience of people was, of course, they did. Um, and there are many other examples that uh, are not written in the official records, but um, that's why the oral history that this book records is so important, because it tells the stories of what actually happened. And um, I believe there's a compelling case. And that's why we talk of contested illnesses. The British say, if people are ill, um, there's no proof that that was caused by their um, term at the nuclear testing base. Um, there's a lot of evidence, indeed evidence from the archives from the time that shows they knew what they were doing and they knew there was a risk and they were willing to take that risk in the, the what they believed was the greater good of building uh, weapons of deterrence against Russian aggression, as it was phrased at that time. Um, the other element of the contested illnesses is the incredible doubt and frustration it creates in the way it really destroys families. Um, you know, a lot of nuclear veterans um, of every nationality have illnesses that they attribute to their time. Um, they may not think that at the beginning, but they may stumble across fellow veterans. And this is what happened to the Fijians 20, 30 years later. They all started discovering that a lot of them were sick. They shared stories and they realised that there were some common patterns. Um, but when you go to the medicos, the medicos can't prove um, that um, it was attributed to their exposure to ionising radiation during a nuclear test. And indeed, um, often doctors don't believe people. And that can cause enormous scientific doubt, it can cause, frankly, a level of paranoia. I mean, I've met quite a few grumpy old men in my time um, who are sick of officials telling them they don't know what they're talking about, that they're wrong, that they're not really sick, that it had nothing to do with nuclear radiation. Um, there's a suspicion of authority amongst many nuclear survivors simply because they're constantly told either they're not ill or that their illness has nothing to do with their service. And many of them feel like Paul Apoy, guilt, because they see their own children suffering illness. Um, and they believe in their heart that it was caused. So that's that contestation about illness. 
and it manifests itself in ways that are quite hard, unrelated to, to radiation. Um, many nuclear veterans have mental health problems, have drinking problems, and indeed have violence problems within their family, within their home, simply because for years they live with the stress and the guilt of what's happened to them, um, and that plays out in family life. And I've interviewed the widows of a number of these people, and after time they've been willing to open up about <laughs> the enormous angst that... Um, it brought to family life because of this contestation around the belief that their service as military personnel during the nuclear testing program caused this hazard to their family, to their children, potentially into the future. And no one believes them. And they take it out on their family rather than the authorities. But more and more, they're starting to organise and say, no, the responsibility lies with the governments that sent us to do this job and then betrayed us. What does your book teach us about memory and collective memory? It teaches me that memory is fallible. Um, as a journalist, it's always a challenge. You know, people tell stories and yeah, we all embroider stories. Um, you know, we, we try and make the stories more heroic or more exciting than they were. You know, a lot of these blokes were just engineers and they were doing laborers' jobs. And it's only later that you think, oh, I'm part of a big enterprise, you know, a global enterprise. Um, so we all tell stories and memory is not always right. It's really interesting um, comparing the, uh, the archival record with the record of, of these things. Um, and I noticed that by the time I got round to interviewing any of the Fijian participants, you know, who, as I say, were there in the 1950s, um, their memories faded in terms of some of the details and dates. Um, they got a few things wrong, frankly, I know, because I've looked at the dates and I know the dates. They don't know the dates. But, but their memory of the bomb going off is indelibly marked on their minds. Um, and it was um, really striking, you know, meeting these guys in their 70s, their 80s, they're telling tales. Some of the stories were interpreted by uh, Fijian colleagues and um, my Fijians hopes and, and so uh, we relied on interpreters and um, they you know could get some details right about when they left and the dates and things like that but when they started describing sitting on the beach on the deck of a warship backs to the blast hands over their eyes to protect their retinas from the flash of the bomb going off the countdown 10, 9, eight, 19-year-old kid, first time out of the country, didn't know that they were going to a nuclear weapons program. They just thought they were going on naval exercises, seven, six, five, and thinking about what it might mean. And then they turn around after the blast and watch this great mushroom cloud going up in the sky. And it's funny, in Fijian, many of them talked about um, um, ice cream. I was thinking, what the hell are they talking about? Because mushroom, they didn't associate the mushroom cloud with a mushroom. Um, it looked like a giant ice cream to them. Interesting cultural difference. There's no word for radiation in Fijian. When I was talking to them, they talked about poison gas. So many of the things that are happening are culturally bound. Um, and that cultural aspect to this is so important. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote a book, trying to capture the voices of the Southern Hemisphere of New Zealanders and Australians and Aboriginal 
people who went through the British testing in Aboriginal land in South Australia. The Ikiribas, um, you know, there's a woman named Tatua who was three years old at the time of the tests. Um, for the early tests, the kids were taken on board a ship, taken below decks, given ice cream, shown a movie. It was too much trouble for the later tests, so they just told them to cover their eyes so they didn't get retinal burns from the flash. But these little kids, she remembers being covered with, by a blanket by her mother, hiding under the blanket when the bomb went off. Um, so she didn't look at the, the blast. Um, today, she's the head of the Association of Cancer Sufferers on Christmas Island um, from exposure to both British and US testing on the island. Um, so those stories have to be told from the reference of the, the people who lived through it. And in much of the literature, the Southern Hemisphere participants are just non-existent. And so I'm really proud of the book that it did capture that, that story. Um, from their perspective, as best I could, um, um, I no one can capture everyone's memories. Um, memories are exaggerated, but I hope that the book, by telling stories of people, often in their own words, comparing it to the archives, comparing it to the, the literature about this, and and really just giving different stories that have been invisible until now. That's something I'm really proud of. What role did Britain's testing play in Winston Churchill's foreign policy and global strategy? Yeah, this is part of a much bigger period, this Cold War period. And, um, you know, my book's just a slice of a much larger imperial history. You know, Churchill had been a warmonger from his very early days. He went off to the Sudan and the Boer War as a young man, as a war correspondent, um, um, he was responsible for the disaster of the Gallipoli campaign during the First World War as first Lord, um, Admiralty Lord. Um, you know, the slaughter of um, men from France, from Britain, from Senegal, from India, from Australia, from New Zealand um, on the beaches of Gallipoli and the hills of the Gallipoli Peninsula. He was involved in wars against the people of Iraq during the 1930s. Um, using chemical weapons. Famously, of course, he fought Nazis. It's one of the best things he did during the Second World War. But by the time this was all happening in the late 1950s, he'd come back to power. Um, in 1951, the Labor government had, under Attlee had begun the process of uh, um, building an independent British nuclear capacity um, because of the McMahon Act, which forbade um, American transfers of nuclear technology and nuclear secrets, even to allies like the United Kingdom. And Churchill, by that stage, was a sick, indeed drunk old man, um, but he really forged ahead to push ahead this nuclear program. Um, he was overwhelmed by the Bravo test in 1954 and wrote letters to Eisenhower, which I quote in the book, um, talking about his recognition of the enormous power of thermonuclear weapons compared to... <laughs> the bombs that had dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and uh, his successors then, Eden and Macmillan, were the ones who really implemented the program. But Churchill was, was crucial in trying to keep Britain as a, um, a major power. His scientific um, advisor, Lord Churwell, uh, who's a major figure in this whole uh, history, 
um, particularly in the books written by Lorna Arnold, the official historian, British historian of this period, uh, show Cherwell recognised that, um, you know, uh, without, uh, without thermonuclear weapons, Britain would be, to use his words, like the native levies who were given small arms but not artillery. And so Lord Cherwell really uh, worked with Churchill and Sir William Penny, the leading British scientist, um, to develop not only atomic weapons, as they tested in Australia, but also these more powerful uh, hydrogen bombs, thermonuclear weapons. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a crucial time. Um, uh, it was a very much also a Commonwealth effort um, and the role of Australia, of New Zealand, of Canada in supporting this program um, was very important. Uh, you know, the Anglosphere settler colonial states um, of the Commonwealth played a significant role um, in uh, the development of the British nuclear arsenal. And that's part of uh, British colonial, British Commonwealth history that's um, um, been recorded uh, by a number of uh, a new historians. Uh, Sue Rabbit Roth writes extensively in this area. And there are uh, there's wonderful books by a woman named Elizabeth Tynan that I encourage people listening uh, to have a look at. Elizabeth is a science writer in Australia and she's written books about the Maralinga tests in Australia, the Emu Field British tests in Australia. Really wonderful books. I, I cringe at the beauty of her writing because <laughs> uh, I feel uh, um, uh, some people can write poetry. Uh, I'm a bit more of a, a, a workman-like journalist uh, and um, there's some good stuff coming out now. And what's really important is Pacific peoples are writing their own histories increasingly. And there's a younger generation of Pacific Island scholars who are going back to this period and writing, uh, uh, rewriting colonial history from below. Um, that's a, an important tradition. One of the reviews of the book that I, I really liked was that it, it rewrote Cold War history from the perspective of the participants around the perspective of the people at the top. It's not tradition of people's histories. Um, I've, I've always enjoyed writers like Marcus Redeker, who's written Atlantic history um, um, from the perspective of the sailors, the pirates, uh, the people on the outer. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the role of journalism. That's the role of history is to tell the same story from different perspectives. Um, and one of the problems is that the imperial history of the Cold War, um, the imperial history of the nuclear weapons program is written as a history of progress, of technological achievement, of scientific discovery and creativity. It's all true at one level, but it completely misses the story about what it meant for other people who participated. And that's my small contribution to, to the story. How did Harold Macmillan, in his memoirs, portray the H-bomb tests? What was his policy towards the tests? What were his relationships like with Prime Minister Sidney Holland of New Zealand, Prime Minister Robert Menzies of Australia during this time? And as a Canadian, I'd be curious to ask you about Canada's attitude towards the test and Canada's place in Britain's relationship with New Zealand and Australia at this time and in regard to the test. Could you share any thoughts on, on Harold Macmillan and the Commonwealth um, in the context of the tests? Macmillan was, 
you know, really central in the latter part of the development of this program. Um, you know, the atomic testing in Australia began in um, 1952 um, at Montebello Islands off the coast of West Australia and continued um, until 1957. Uh, as well as developing atomic weapons, they conducted a series of atomic trials in Australia. Um, and uh, the final antler tests held in 1957 were to develop the atomic triggers that were then used on Christmas Island. Macmillan you know, recognised that there were political as well as technical challenges to conducting the tests in the Northern Hemisphere. And so he looked to um, allies with vast amounts of space, basically, um, to allow this to, to happen. After the Second World War, the British set up a, a rocket range at Woomera in the deserts of South Australia um, to test their missiles. Um, and uh, eventually they uh, um, sectioned off part of the Woomera rocket range uh, for the test in the 1950s. That was done with the acquiescence of our then Prime Minister, um, Sir Robert Menzies, a conservative leader who governed Australia for many years after the Second World War, right up until the 1960s. Uh, Menzies was uh, uh, an empire loyalist, indeed, uh, many would say an empire apologist. And um, he took the decision to allow nuclear testing in Australia um, with just one or two senior advisors and uh, Minister of Supply Howard Beale, who was responsible for implementing the test. So Macmillan and Menzies agreed that uh, Australia's role would be in secret. So the decision by the Australian government to allow Britain to test nuclear weapons in Australia was conducted without cabinet approval, let alone parliamentary approval, and was undertaken in great secrecy um, out in the middle of the desert where um, people thought no one would be affected. Of course, however, there were Anungu people, indigenous uh, Pichin Jajara people, Aboriginal people, on whose land the test was conducted and many of them were, were severely affected by the, the tests, both through relocation programs that took them off their traditional lands, but also for those who were there from exposure. Others played a, a role, but it was often done in secret. And in uh, the book chapter that I have about Harold Macmillan, I document from um, archival research, um, the telegrams and correspondence, the personal letters and telegrams coded through the high commissions that were sent to Robert Menzies in Australia, to their New Zealand Prime Minister, Sidney Holland, and to newly elected John Diefenbacher in Canada, because the, the logistics of these operations um, needed assistance from people nearer to the test ground. Um, and so um, um, after Menzies had secretly allowed the British to conduct um, nuclear tests in Australia, you can't um, hide what's going on eventually because of the number of people involved and indeed because some of the tests went wrong and carried radioactive fallout across major urban centres in Australia as well as the central desert. Um, and that was later revealed during the Royal Commission in 1984 how badly the British safety provisions had gone astray um, during the Australian tests. And even Menzies was smart enough not to let the British test more powerful thermonuclear weapons in Australia. So the British turned to New Zealand and uh, there were initial investigations about whether some New Zealand uh, island dependencies like the Chatham Islands or the Kermadec Islands might be used uh, for testing grounds. Um, for various reasons, the New Zealanders were reluctant uh, to um, allow this to happen. 
and uh, Sydney Holland, the then Prime Minister, was a Labor Prime Minister. Um, but at the same time, there was uh, a close kinship with uh, Britain uh, um, between New Zealand, Australia, Canada and uh, the British Commonwealth. Uh, so Holland agreed that while he wouldn't allow New Zealand territory to be used, uh, New Zealand would provide two naval frigates from the Royal New Zealand Navy to participate in the British Naval Task Force. And so 551 New Zealanders joined Operation Grapple for the Christmas Island and Molden Island tests. Um, Diefenbacher was a matter of geography to a certain extent. Um, Canada had developed a nuclear reactor, a research reactor that was providing tritium and other nuclear materials to the British nuclear weapons program. Um, there'd been a big fire at Windscale in Britain uh, at the reactor, and so the Canadian reactors were very important um, at that scientific and technical level. And you had uh, people from Australia and others uh, involved in the British scientific work. Um, Sir Mark Oliphant and other physicists were pretty central to the development of the American and the British bombs. Um, so that technical level that was there. But also Canada's role was geographic. Um, the British had to ship the bomb, fly the bomb, literally halfway around the world. And um, Canada provided secretly access to air bases uh, at Goose Bay, particularly, um, for the transit of um, uh, uh, nuclear materials um, and uh, the uh, components of the bomb itself dismantled, which were then assembled on Christmas Island um, to be put in a plane and dropped uh, um, to uh, gather the scientific data that they needed. So Canada's role was uh, significant in that way as well. All of this was conducted in great secrecy. And uh, in the book, I quote uh, from the letters and, and telegrams. In fact, Sydney Holland said, look, we're happy to send a couple of ships. Please don't talk about it too much. Um, you know, this was a time uh, in the mid-50s, late-50s, where there was a growing movement against nuclear weapons testing. Um, uh, the campaign for nuclear disarmament in Britain formed in 1958. The um, uh, Japanese um, Council Against A&H Bombs formed in 1955. Uh, the non-aligned movement was calling for a moratorium on the testing of nuclear weapons. Soviet Union was using uh, um, the Trusteeship Council to put pressure on New Zealand and Britain and others about the use of their colonial dependencies under UN trusteeship for these testing programs. So there's a lot of political pressure to get this done and get it done quickly. And um, to that extent, um, the Anglosphere Commonwealth countries like Canada played a significant political role as well as purely logistic. Um, they were, you know, eager to, to stop uh, criticism from uh, third world countries, um, from the Soviet Union at that time of the testing program. And so New Zealand's representative on the UN Trusteeship Council was actively involved in stopping petitions being moved through the UN system. Because, um, you know, we know of Greenpeace's role in decades later in trying to halt nuclear testing but people living under colonial administration in the Pacific Islands sent a series of petitions to the United Nations Trusteeship Council and other UN bodies seeking an end to testing. So from the Marshall Islands, there were two petitions uh, developed by customary chiefs and school teachers uh, with hundreds of signatures going to uh, New York asking for an end to American testing. Um, dependencies like uh, the New Zealand dependency of the Cook Islands and Western Samoa, um, as it was in those days, today the Independent Republic of Samoa, sent um, um, 
petitions to the trusteeship council saying New Zealand shouldn't be allowing tests to go on in an area relatively close, particularly to the Cook Islands. Um, and uh, these sort of petitions were blocked. Um, so the trusteeship council voted nine to one, the one being the Russians, to allow these petitions to proceed. Uh, so that political support from the Anglosphere powers was very important, as well as the logistic and technical support they provided uh, to the program. You alluded earlier to Sui Kiritomi. Can you tell us more about her? In what ways is her lived experience representative of the consequences for Gilbertese women or for Ikiribas women of Britain's tests? One of, the, one of the great fears of women is what might happen to their reproductive health from exposure to ionizing radiation and potential genetic impacts on their children. Um, when uh, Suikura Tommy was on the island at the time, she was a young mother in her 20s um, and uh, her children born after the tests uh, you know, had a number of health impacts at the time, as is documented in the book. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the plantation workers that, that were on the island had been there since the Second World War. Um, she'd come from another part of uh, the Gilbert and Ellis Islands colony uh, with her husband. And um, they were at one level bemused by this incredible you know, experience of thousands of troops, naval warships arriving, uh, a massive airstrip being built, and the Gilbertese labourers under a um, um, control of a New Zealand uh, patrol officer were transformed from uh, picking copra, um, the dried flesh of the coconut, um, which was a major economic mainstay for the island, into just working, doing all sorts of jobs, everything from cleaning toilets to... Um, um, uh, driving trucks to helping with the uh, construction of the airstrip. Um, for the women, their experience was largely invisible. There were three or 4,000 British troops on the island at any one time, all men. Um, the very few women on the island were either the wives of the plantation workers um, or two English women, Mary, Mary and Billy Burgess, who came uh, through an organisation called the Women's Voluntary Service to set up a rest and recreation centre for the troops. Um, and their story is told as a chapter in the book as well. Um, the experience of the Kiribati women parallels that of women in the Marshall Islands, women in Aboriginal communities in Australia, women in um, uh, French Polynesia, that they believe that many of their children have been born with disabilities, have been born with um, um, significant health problems because of their presence during the nuclear testing era or because of ongoing exposure from uh, long lasting radioactive isotopes from plutonium to cesium and other cesium-137 and other um, hazardous isotopes that are still in the marine environment and in the food chain. And in the book, I um, quote people say from the Marshall Islands who talk about how the radioactive fallout that came from the Bravo test in 1954 was seen like snowflakes and um, kids were rubbing it into their hair and, uh, um, and so on. Um, and indeed, the military authorities at the time noticed that the 
significant problem arose because of the tradition that Marshallese girls, and it's true of Kiribati girls, use coconut oil to um, use in their hair, um, and um, that helped capture some of the fallout. So Kiribati women were very worried. Um, as I mentioned, um, Suikira Tommy, she stood on the deck of a British naval force watching the, the black cloud raining across the naval task force, had um, felt a burning sensation on her face. And decades later, when I met her, um, she still had a small radiation burn on her face from that time. And part of the tragedy, too, was that um, her daughter, Rakesh, who was involved in interviewing her about this experience and documenting her mother's story, had been um, in the womb at that time. And so the psychological concerns linger on for many people beyond their own immediate health problems. There's a, an enormous intergenerational concern um, and an awareness that people are going to be living with the issues of cleanup, of compensation, of recognition for decades to come. What's striking is that a younger generation of people in the Pacific Islands are now documenting this history, um, stepping forward. And so you see in the Marshall Islands, where the Americans tested their nuclear weapons, um, wonderful young people who are very involved in the campaign for um, uh, recognition, for compensation, for cultural acknowledgement. Um, these are often young climate activists, um, people who have been involved in recent decades around the, the call for climate justice, because these low-lying Pacific Island atoll nations are on the front line of the um, sea level rise, extreme weather events and cyclones that affect um, communities because of global warming. And the young activists who are battling on climate issues um, look to what happened to their mothers, to their grandmothers, um, and they feel a moral responsibility, but they also look to the history of resistance and protest that came from that time. So you see the climate justice movement across the Pacific is a transnational, Indigenous-led, environmentally conscious movement. And um, the 21st century rebels look back to other past experiences of these transnational networks led by islanders and they found that in the nuclear free and independent Pacific movement of the 20th century, this regional network um, that grew from the 1970s particularly, but drawing on the protests of the 1950s, saying enough is enough. We want to abolish nuclear weapons and we want the nuclear weapons powers to take up their responsibilities for cleanup, for compensation, for reparations, for environmental remediation. And so young women today um, are, are capturing the stories of the survivors who are now largely uh, um, um, growing old and uh, um, will no longer be able to tell their stories in uh, future years. Who is Paul Apoy? What kinds of long-term health conditions has he suffered from? Paul lived through a lot. Paul was a member of the Fiji Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. Uh, witnessed seven of the nine grapple tests on Christmas in Malden Island, um, did a few tours, um, and, uh, you know, was, was put in hazardous situations. He was always very conscious that his time had held, hit, hit not only his health, but that of his family. Um, in his first marriage, he had uh, a young daughter um, who had a number of... Uh, mobility disability problems, uh, very young. 
and died at age two and a half from causes that the doctors could not um, um, attribute. Uh, his son later on um, grew up, uh, still alive, but um, uh, was unable to have children, something Paul felt great shame and guilt for. He told me many times, um, even though, of course, he was not responsible. Um, Paul had a series of health problems, particularly around skin lesions, um, had a series of operations um, to health problems that he attributed to his time um, um, and uh, potential exposure to ionising radiation. Uh, and he became a very active member of the Fiji Nuclear Test Veterans, uh, Fiji Nuclear Veterans Association, after the death of Ratu Inoki Banimarama, who created the group. Uh, and Paul campaigned um, until his death uh, last year um, for justice for his fellow uh, soldiers and sailors. A uh, very quiet man, um, very proud man, but a very tenacious man um, who didn't let his own health concerns get in the way of a recognition that he was part of a bigger picture, part of a bigger program, um, and that he needed to work for others. And, you know, he was one of the many who felt that these were um, difficult things to talk about. You know, he'd come back from um, um, his time in the 1950s, having been told that this was all official secrets, governed by the Official Secrets Act. Britain, of course, in the 1950s, 60s was still uh, Fiji, uh, Britain was still the colonial power in Fiji. Um, so people were under there, and there was enormous ties, cultural ties between Britain and Fiji that still linger to this day. Um, but um, it was only decades later, as these health problems built up, that Paul joined with other sailors um, to uh, talk about this. And then the army guys, the engineers who'd been there, um, and they began to campaign um, for recognition. They began to link up with um, uh, people in Britain um, because they were invisible in the British stories that were being told by journalists in the UK about the British nuclear veterans. But the New Zealanders and the Fijians were invisible by and large in that. So over time, these courageous young men getting old started building links and learning of the experience of others. I travelled with Paul to a conference in Tahiti once uh, where he spoke to um, workers from uh, the group Mururoi Tato, which is an association of uh, Polynesians, of Maui workers who worked on the French nuclear test sites. And you could see the, the recognition together as Paul met French military personnel who'd served on the French tests. They listened to his stories and they realised same struggle, same fight, that the, the lived experience was the same despite the different colonial context, despite the different timeframes for the testing programs, that they had a lot of things in common. And a lot of that was about the refusal of the authorities to recognise their health problems were related to their time on Christmas Island or Mororoa, and the enormous burden they felt um, that they may have caused problems for their family, for their children's and for future generations. Um, but without having the proof to be able to to do anything about it. Can you tell us about Ratu Panaya Ganilau? Can you describe his medical situation as a result of the tests? This is another quite amazing story. Ratu Panaya Ganilau was one of the highest chiefs in 
Fiji in the 1950s and a leading um, uh, figure in the military. He'd uh, led a contingent of the um, Fijian forces um, serving with Britain uh, during the Malaya insurgency in the 1950s. Um, he'd risen to a senior officer within the military forces before retiring. And when the first contingent of Fijian sailors went off to Christmas Island, um, he traveled there uh, to represent the people of Fiji and the customary leaders of Fiji alongside the commander of the um, uh, Naval Reserve, a guy called uh, Stan Brown. Um, the legend goes that um, he was honoured by the British to witness um, the second nuclear test conducted uh, on Malden Island. And um, the day after the test, a number of people went on to the island, both technicians to gather equipment that had been put on the island to monitor the size of the blast. Um, but dignitaries were invited to go. And the story was that he went, um, people said he went in bare feet, but I think he went in sandals. Um, um, certainly, they had no boots big enough for him. He was a huge man, uh, well over six foot, uh, very solidly built, uh, charismatic figure, a real chief um, in Fijian custom, a great leader. Um, he came back, drink whiskey with the British authorities and uh, went back to Fiji um, wearing his white flash suit um, to uh, minimise the blast and uh, light of the uh, nuclear detonation. Years later, he had a series of health effects. Um, and indeed, um, I, over time, uh, built up links with members of his family. Um, Ratu Supanaya, however, was a British loyalist and eventually became the Governor General of Fiji. Um, he later served after the 1987 coups in Fiji that uh, turned the country into a republic. He was the first president of uh, Fiji. So a very high dignitary, a man of great uh, status within Fiji and cultural, customary life, um, a governor general, the Queen's representative um, in Fiji. Um, he died in Walter Reed uh, Military Hospital in Washington um, of leukemia and Guillain-Barre disease, which is an autoimmune disease. And um, members of his family, uh, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think they believe that um, um, that was related to his time on Christmas Island. It was noticed um, in the family that his two youngest sons, um, born after 1957, after he'd been on Malden Island, um, both of them were unable to have children. And over time, um, I talked to members of the family uh, in 1999, when uh, Los Senos Alambula, Josua Mundrailangi and myself um, co-authored the book uh, Krismasi, which uh, did the first version in Fijian of these stories, um, Ratu Rambidhi Nanalao, Ratu Samadaya's son, uh, launched the book, which I think was the family's way of saying that they showed support for what we were doing without wanting to um, talk really about their father. But in the current book, Grappling with the Bomb, um, um, Ratu Manaya's children have spoken with me and provided photos very kindly. And one of his daughters has been very involved uh, providing legal and uh, political support to the Fiji nuclear veterans. Um, the family, you know, believes that the British have a responsibility, that um, their family has served Britain in the highest post that you can as Governor General, um, and that uh, Britain has responsibilities to those uh, that's a very important part of Pacific culture, 
a culture of reciprocity, that if you do things for people, they further down the line need to do things in reciprocity in return. It's a very part, important part of the relationships that govern cultural life right across the Pacific, um, the friendships, um, the ties that exist are on the basis of obligation and reciprocity to those that you, you meet, you deal with, you work with. Um, my writing the book in part was my reciprocity um, to uh, honour the people who'd shared their stories with me. Um, that's the best I could contribute to was uh, my skill as a journalist. Um, and I hope uh, that I've captured their words, very hard to capture their words in all the full, full nuance of what it's meant for their life. But um, for people like Paul Apoi, Sui Kiratomi, um, Rutgers Bang, and I, their stories have been invisible. Now they're not. And that's something that's been uh, a really proud moment of what I've done. I'd be curious to ask you your perspective on some, some certain recent events. One is the case brought by the Marshall Islands against Britain before the International Court of Justice. A second is the new movement, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 for its work to create the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I would be curious to ask you your perspective on these two recent developments in light of the findings of your book. The anti-nuclear sentiment that we see manifested today has its roots in these events in the 20th century. Um, you know, there was 50 years of nuclear testing in the Pacific Islands from 1946 to 1996. Indeed, the plane that flew to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Enola Gay and Bokka, flew from Tinian Island in the Pacific, in the Marianas. So the Pacific has been at the heart of the nuclear era for Western powers like America, Britain, France, from the beginning. And nuclear testing ended in 1996. But the legacies, the health legacies, the environmental legacies, the cultural legacies are with us in the 21st century. And the failure of the nuclear weapon states to address issues of cleanup and compensation, and indeed to meet their obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to negotiate the dismantlement of their nuclear arsenals, the repeated failure of the nuclear weapons powers to move towards that has meant that there's a strong anti-nuclear sentiment still growing in the Pacific. The Pacific's always been active on this. In 1985, in the midst of the Reagan-Gorbachev nuclear buildup, the Pacific created the Rarotonga Treaty for a South Pacific nuclear-free zone, which covers the land and waters of uh, much of the South Pacific, uh, not the Northern Pacific, but the South Pacific, um, as a nuclear weapons-free zone. And indeed, there are nuclear weapons-free zones right across the Southern Hemisphere in Latin America, in Antarctica, in Southeast Asia, in Africa. Um, Pacific countries have been at the forefront of the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which, as you say, was mobilised by ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, founded in Melbourne, Australia, my hometown, um, in uh, um, years ago, uh, but has succeeded in creating new international law. There is now international law calling for the prohibition of 
nuclear weapons. And in a very short time, a third of the membership of the United Nations, small developing countries by and large, but others like uh, Austria uh, have joined them, um, calling for the abolition of nuclear arsenals. Now, none of the nuclear weapon states have uh, signed on, nor are they likely quickly, but it's setting new norms for action. Um, that's true particularly around the key clauses of the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, around assistance to nuclear survivors. Um, it's been a, a, a former Kiribati president, um, Sebororo Tito, who is currently uh, the Kiribati ambassador to the United Nations, who's been working uh, to develop the mechanisms um, under this global treaty that would provide um, financial and other assistance to nuclear survivors. It's Kiribati and Kazakhstan, interesting choice of uh, countries, but Kazakhstan suffered um, nuclear testing from the Soviet Union and the Kazakh people have um, um, uh, gone through many of the same things as the Pacific peoples. Um, this supposedly empty space had many people affected by nuclear testing. So Kiribati and Kazakhstan have worked together over the last year or two to uh, um, bring together a diplomatic agreement about how assistance might be provided to nuclear survivors under this new treaty. So there's a, a, a growing sense that um, alongside the existential threat that climate change poses to humanity, to the environment, to species, um, so the ongoing threat of nuclear extinction is still a threat in the 21st century. Um, the story is not over. And uh, we've seen uh, Russian nuclear saber rattling around the uh, um, period earlier this year when the Russians invaded Ukraine. Um, NATO responding with um, uh, nuclear menaces of their own. Um, the development of uh, nuclear arsenals where, um, be it Trump or Biden, uh, be it uh, Labor or Conservative in the United Kingdom, Macron in France, uh, more and more money pumped into modernizing, extending, uh, developing new technologies of nuclear destruction. There's a growing um, movement that says that the NPT is broken, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is broken, that there are no global negotiations. Time to, to abolish these weapons. And the Pacific Islands, because of their lived experience, have said enough is enough. How does your book advance our knowledge of colonialism and the history of colonialism? What new is in your book to advance or challenge our previous understandings of colonialism? I think there's aspects that people have known but haven't been sort of fleshed out before. I don't claim that beyond the focus on Kiribati, which isn't a big part of the, the literature, um, but um, I think in the Pacific... Um, I think in the Pacific, the nuclear project of the 20th century was only possible because the United States, Britain and France were colonial powers. Um, it's really integrated colonialism, the denial of self-determination, indeed the denial of political independence that continues to this day in French Polynesia um, that has allowed the nuclear arsenals to be developed. And so the nuclear free and independent Pacific movement that flourished throughout the 20th century, the late 20th century, made that connection. Nuclearism and colonialism 
are deeply interconnected and that's tied to notions of civilized populations and primitive populations that some could be sacrificed in the interest of the greatest good. The people of the so-called primitive populations don't agree. Um, the other thing I think about the book is that it uh, tries to refocus attention on the people who made it happen, not just the politicians, not just the scientists, not just the senior military personnel involved in this whole process, but the workers, the laborers, the soldiers and sailors, the people who crewed the boats, who drove the bulldozers. Um, you know, history is made up of ordinary people. Their stories are often invisible in the media, in academia, in scholarly literature. And um, I've been very influenced by historians who talk about the people's history. Um, one review called um, my book a, a democratic history of Operation Grapple. It's a term I quite like um, because it recognises that we're all participants. And I think that's an element that, that I try and stress. The Pacific Islanders who were involved in this process around Operation Grapple, around the development of the British nuclear arsenal, had different reactions. Some were eager participants, the adventure. Some accepted the reality that Britain was a great colonial power, they didn't have much option, but others resisted and resisted fiercely. And those different perspectives are important to highlight that the Pacific Islands were not simply victims in this process, they were actors, they were agents, they had a vision, they had a voice, and you know, that's what books like this should be doing, is creating a space for those voices to be heard, to be shared be understood so we don't do it again. As we bring our dialogue to a close, what are you working on next as your current project? What are you working on now as your subsequent project? I'm doing a lot of work on France in the Pacific. Um, uh, you know, France is still a colonial power in the Pacific. Um, it has three dependencies, uh, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, Wallace and Fortuna. Um, as Northern Hemisphere powers look to the vast resources of the Pacific Ocean, fisheries, seabed minerals, oil and gas, uh, marine biodiversity, France uh, maintains a vast exclusive economic zone across the Pacific, more than 7 million square kilometres, it claims sovereignty over, but the indigenous peoples of its dependencies, the Kanak people of New Caledonia, the Maui people of French Polynesia, the Walesians and Fortunians, they say these are our islands, these are our waters, these are our lands, these are our resources. And that tension is playing out in modern geopolitics. Um, there's a lot of attention focused on China in the Pacific, um, in international affairs at the moment, uh, China expanding um, defence, security, economic investment ties with small island nations, as it's doing everywhere in the world. Um, but I'm very aware that the European Union and France are still major players. France is a colonial power. And many of the things we've talked about today about Great Britain are just as relevant for um, France as a, a, a European nation, a colonial nation in the Pacific Islands. So um, I speak French and um, I'm doing a lot of work, research and writing about France's ongoing role in the region. Um, and uh, the nuclear legacy is um, still very much part of that story as well. 
I appreciate your time in this dialogue. I could not have been more grateful for your erudition and for everything you have taught us both in this interview and in the book. I am absolutely appreciative for everything you have shared with us today and would like to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Ari, and thank you for the opportunity to um, um, share some stories. Um, um, and I encourage people, uh, you know, it's uh, an interesting part of the world, and I hope you find the, the book uh, captures some um, tall tales and true that uh, haven't been shared before. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, to our listeners, this has been Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books Network podcast. I have been in dialogue today with Nick McClellan. Nick is a journalist and researcher in the Pacific Islands. He is a correspondent for Islands Business Magazine, a regional news and current affairs magazine published in Fiji. We have been discussing his new book, Grappling with the Bomb, Britain's Pacific H-Bomb Tests, published in Canberra by Australian National University Press, 2017. Thank you.